we're going to start a new series uh, today. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be starting a series called Rhythms of Grace. Grace is a word that I use a lot around this church. And I don't just use it because it's a nice word. I use it because it's what we're called to be. I mean, when you study Scripture, when you understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, there is one word that always seems to kind of bubble to the top, and it's grace. That we should be an expression of grace to people. It is a defining characteristic of a Christ follower. It kind of sets the tone for our lives. I, I like music, but my son PJ loves music. All right, he seems to just have this soundtrack to his life. I mean, it's rare that he's not listening to music, whether it's I'll go in at night, he's got the earbuds in sleeping, he's, when he's on the train, when he's just walking, he just seems to always have this rhythm to his life, so much so that he is just constantly, like, tapping his foot. And sometimes I'm like, stop, like, just stop for a minute. It's okay, he's just got this rhythm that seems to motivate him and push him forward. And the truth is this, God has also given each of us this natural rhythm when it comes to being a Christ follower. It's not something we have to dream up inside of us. It's not something we have to find and discover. When we surrender our lives to Christ, there's this natural rhythm that just starts to play in our life. It starts to tap and beat in our life, and it just kind of gets us going every day, and that's grace. Grace is this lifeblood of the follower of Christ. And there's a passage that uh, Kara read this morning out of the book of Ephesians that kind of lays this tone and rhythm for this series and helps us understand that grace is not static, but it is this heartbeat of who we are. And look at this again, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. How? By grace. You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You see, grace is not just something that you and I experience once in our faith journey. It's not that moment when we surrender our lives to Christ and we experience the grace of forgiveness and like that was it and we're done. It is constant in our lives. It's not just something that we hope other people will experience one day. It is the lifeblood of a Christ follower. When you and I surrender our lives to Christ, it was, wasn't that in just that moment we experienced grace, but at that same moment, we became instruments of God's grace to be used and on display to show his immeasurable grace and to show it to all of the world. Grace became woven into our DNA. It became part of of our blood system, and as we reach out to other people, it's like we're transfusing it to them. I have a, a medical condition called hemochromatosis, which is like a big word, lots of big words, but it just basically means my liver doesn't pull the iron out of my blood as often as it should, and so about every six weeks, I have to go give blood. And so I go to Grand Central, there's a New York blood center there, and they, they all know me now, I've been going for years, and so uh, the, the weird part is not giving blood, it's about two weeks after, I get an email that says, Sarah got your blood. And I was like, great for Sarah. Like, I'm excited. Like, and there's no picture, but it's just like, whenever my blood that was tagged gets used, they send me an email to let me know who was impacted by that blood. And it's kind of weird. Like, when you walk around the city, you go like, 
do you have a little amount like you know who's who's walking around with that but it's it's this idea when we live out the grace in our life the same thing happens we start interacting with people and they take the grace that's in us experience and they start walking around with it as well that's the way god designed us to live it's who we are in the next five weeks we're going to take a look at this beautiful beats of grace that are played out in our life to create this beautiful rhythm of how we not only bring pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope into our life, but how we help other people experience it as well. And we're going to do that by looking at 2 Corinthians 9. As much as Ephesians 2 is kind of the theory behind the grace that helps us understand how it impacts our lives, I'm glad that Paul moved beyond just theory and he also put it into practice. And this passage in 2 Corinthians 9 is how we put it into practice. Let me give you a little background on this chapter and this letter so we know what we're jumping into. We're jumping right in the middle of something and so to understand kind of what's going on. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are kind of known as the charitable chapters. They, they talk about giving a lot. And, and they just you know challenge you to meet, help meet others' needs and stuff like that. But this isn't Paul just giving advice. He's actually sharing a real-world need. And he's asking the church in Corinth, who he sent this letter to, to collect money and resources and to give a gift to the Christians in Jerusalem. Now, why do these Christians in Jerusalem need this gift? What's going on? There are many times when we think about the early church, especially the early church in Jerusalem, we think, you know, that's where everything started. You know, this is probably the biggest church that there was. This is, you know, maybe they have this big building like the Vatican already built there and Peter sitting on a throne like, go and make Christians of all people. That's exactly not what it's like. It's actually the complete opposite. The church in Jerusalem, the place where Jesus lived, died, and did his ministry, was actually one of the most persecuted and poor churches that there was. This was a place that was steeped in Judaism, and they're trying to build a brand new religion, experience something brand new. And so think about it. These followers of Jesus that have been entrenched in this Jewish culture and community were now pushing against it. They weren't allowed in the synagogues. They weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed into many people's homes. People wouldn't do business with them. They wouldn't even eat with them or serve them food. They had been ostracized, marginalized, and left very vulnerable. This was a church in great need, need of resources and in need of encouragement. And in chapters 8 and 9, Paul is reminding the church in Corinth that this is part of our role of being part of the family of faith, is to see a need and to help it, to help those in need to help those that are marginalized, those that are labeled as different, outsiders, or illegitimate. This was not a command that he was giving to, to use guilt to make them feel bad and say, you've got to give. Instead, Paul was reminding them that to walk to the rhythm of grace in our life is to let grace play out in our life so that we see the need, we can help it. So let's take a few minutes this morning, and I want to look at two verses out of chapter 9, and we're going to work through chapter 9, uh, a few verses in there over the next five weeks, and see what this first note and this rhythm of grace is. So look at Second Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. And this is Paul, and he says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. These two verses here talk about the beat of grace, and it's this idea of generosity. Generosity. Paul says from the very beginning that a generous spirit must be in our lives if grace is going to flow. 
Grace begins with generosity. It is a defining characteristic. So what is generosity? I know when I hear that word, I often think about being charitable or willing to give to others out of my abundance what I have left over. But the concept of generosity here is actually something very different. When it says that God loves a cheerful giver, that word giver, when you actually look at it, it would actually be better translated bestower. To give would actually mean to to bestow. And the word bestow carries much more meaning than just the idea of giving. To be a bestower means that you put to use everything that you have. It's not just out of the abundance. It's not just the extra, but you are putting all that you have to use. The best way I can understand between giving and bestowing is this. When, when birthday rolls around or Christmas rolls around, I mean, I don't mind getting a gift card from somebody, right? That's giving. They went on the way to the party and stopped at CVS and got a card and a gift card. We've all done that, right? But bestowing is this. It's when, like my wife knits, is when she makes this hand-knitted piece of clothing and brings that to you because she created something out of her skill and out of what she does, all that she is, thinking of you while she was doing it and giving it to you as a gift. That's the difference. We can all give, like, quick gift card, but to bestow something takes intentionality, it takes planning, it takes this idea that I am going to do something and working to do it. See, what Paul is talking about here is not the practice of generosity. He's talking about becoming a person of generosity. It is a willingness to open up our lives fully and allow all that we have, all that we are, to be used to impact the lives of others. Generosity is not sharing out of our abundance. Instead, it's a willingness to bestow anything and everything. It is this reminder that there is nothing in our lives that was designed to only be used for me and by me. When I'm given something, whatever I'm blessed with, whatever talent, whatever natural abilities, whatever station in life I find myself with, it's not designed to be used just for me. It's designed to be used for other people as well, for everybody. It's not hiding the best and giving away what you don't want. I remember growing up, going to my grandmother's. I don't know how she did this, but she had five grandkids, uh, seven uh, grandkids. Two came a little later. And if they're watching, they're going to get mad at me right now because they always feel like they get the leftovers. But anyway, sorry. Uh, But when we would go to my grandmother's, she had this, I called it the magic cookie jar, basically. And whatever grandkid happened to be come over, she knew exactly what our favorite treat was. And that thing would be filled with whatever we like. Mine was those Nutty Bars, those little Debbie Nutty Bars. I loved those things. And I would go in, but like if I would go over and me and my brother was there, it was those and oatmeal cream pies. If it was somebody, she would just know. And she, she never said, well, just deal with what's there. She always thought about what was most meaningful to us. And she put that out for us. She gave that to us. That's generosity. That's not holding anything back. That's not just saying, well, You get my leftovers. You get the best of what I have. And he is writing these people that that he believes are already followers of Christ. And as we talk about generosity playing out, one of the first things that we think about as an enemy of generosity is selfishness, right? Like just being selfish. And we could do a whole sermon on selfishness. But again, Paul is writing to people who he thinks basically understand that there is value in generosity. And so what he's trying to do is actually remove the restraints to allow us to fully experience generosity. And I think as he does this, 
he fights against a few misconceptions that he talks about here in Scripture. And so in our remaining time, I want to hit some of these misconceptions and see how we as a people, we as a church, can become people of generosity. The first misconception we're going to look at is this, is thinking that generosity is just about money. I love the way he starts here. And if you go back and read chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9, he's talking about giving and he's kind of doing, talking about some specific needs and stuff like this. But then he says, like, guys, this is the point. Like, just listen right here. It is not about the money. Even though Paul is writing this letter, he's not speaking to them personally. It's like I can hear what they're thinking as they're reading the letter. Like, oh, it's the giving speech again. Right? All right. Like, I get people all the time, like, coming to me, like, hey, I'm bringing a visitor today. Please don't talk about money or hell. Like, those are the two things. <laughs> like, as long as you don't talk about those two things, we're good today, you know? So it's, but I imagine that's what they were like reading and like, oh, okay, this is the money speech. And he's like, hold on. Get, let me get your attention. This is the point. It's not about money. Generosity is not about money. It's about giving. And giving means so much more than putting cash in a basket, writing a check, or swiping a card. The truth is, the easiest way to give is often to give money. And I wish Paul had just come out and said, look, if you want to be an obedient follower of Christ, give X amount of money every week, every time you show up to church, and you're good to go. But he does something bigger than that. He says there's a bigger point than just writing a check. And when you study this passage and other passages of scriptures, you see a beautiful picture painted of what it means to give generously. And the first thing, uh, this was even in the passage Jared shared with us over the past two weeks out of Hebrews 10, is to learn to give your time. To give your time. Hebrews 10 talked about us spending time together, interacting with one another. Part of being generous is a willingness to give your time to spend with other people, to share life with them. How, you, how else will you know what their needs are? How else will you know how to interact in their life, to deeply pray for them? How else will you know to stand with them than if you're actually spending time with them? When I think about doing this, I think about a few things. Like when I think about giving time, sometimes I just have to give time for interactions. I have to slow down. I have to stop. I have to make time for meals with people. I have to make time to just hang out. And we live in a world, in a society, in a city where that can be difficult. It's go, 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 go. And to sometimes just stop and say, I need to give some time to my friends. I need to know what's going on in their life. I have some deep friends in this faith family and others outside of this as well that, like, I feel a part of me starts to slip away when I don't spend enough time with them because I stop knowing the rhythms of their life and I don't know how to best connect with them. And it's not that we're trying to disconnect, it's just that we're not intentionally finding that time to connect. So sometimes giving time is giving time for interactions. But it's also giving time when it's inconvenient, right? I wish that always was great. Like we could plan it and it was perfect and just happened. Like it's just on the schedule. And it just, but sometimes you have to stop what you're doing, something that's important to you, to give time when it's inconvenient for somebody else because of a need that comes up in their life. And I, like, I love spending time with friends. I hate moving in the city. And so when somebody calls me, it's like, hey, can you have time to come help me move? Like, that's an inconvenience for me. It's not a choice. It's like, I'm not like, yes, that's my favorite thing to do. Uh, but it's, even times like that, you're like, maybe this is something I don't want to do. Like, I'd rather do something else with you. But for them, that's what they need at that moment. And for you, there's going to be a time where you need something in a moment, and it's going to be inconvenient for other people as well. But that's part of giving. It's giving time. 
And then the other thing I think this might be a little more difficult for us is sometimes giving people time to grow and develop. You may not realize this, but not everybody in here is fully developed in their maturity. And like, we are still have shortcomings. We still fall short. And a lot of times we don't give people room to grow and develop and the time to do that. And it's understanding that sometimes my friendships are going to hurt. Sometimes the investments with one another are going to be difficult. But we have to give time for that to play out, for us to grow together, for them to grow, and for me to grow as well. So give time. But also then that leads right into we have to give relationally. The book of Colossians talks this beautiful passage about how you and I are to bear one another's burdens together, to even carry the weight of sin together, and to, to be willing to forgive no matter what, to generously bear with one another giving room for each other to struggle and fall short. And to be honest, this is often the most difficult type of giving that there is, is to give when it hurts, to give people the benefit of the doubt, to give people forgiveness and a second chance, to give people an opportunity when you feel like they're just going to fail anyway. It's giving relationally. It's opening up your heart. And the key word here is a willingness to have intimacy with other people, to be vulnerable and allow them to be vulnerable without taking advantage of it. That's giving relationally. And then the third type of giving is to give resources. Again, 2 Corinthians 8 is a great example of this, a great chapter about sharing resources. And this is where Paul lays out the idea of giving. It isn't looking out of our abundance, but it's out of who we are. And you know what? We have to give resources that actually meet needs in people's lives. We don't just give them something they don't need, but actually meet needs. But... I think it's bigger than just saying, hey, here's the money or here's this or here's that. It's meet a need, but also create resources that help make a way out of their struggle. Not just to soothe it for a moment, but how can you give resources in such a way that give them a pathway out of their struggle? That then the third way you can give resources is to then help create an environment for healthier living. So I I think where I fall short all the time when I talk about giving resources is like I'm just going to, this person needs $10, I'm going to give them $10 and I'm done. I met, an, I met an instantaneous need in their life and that's all I needed to do, right? But the truth is that didn't really change their life and didn't give them a pathway out. Giving resources is truly helping them a ladder out of their pit, but not just when they're out of their pit stopping, it's then actually creating an environment for them to grow healthy. And we're just going to talk more about this next week of how we use our resources to respond in people's lives versus just meet a need and move on. And this is the point. Stop thinking generosity is about money and realize that it's actually about embracing the attitude of giving. But there's another misconception. The second misconception is this. It's thinking just generosity is just about giving. You just said it was. Well, it's it's the starting point, but that's not all it is. Look at what Paul says here in verse 6. It says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap. Bountifully. Paul uses these two words, sow and reap, to remind us that our giving isn't an end point, it's a beginning point. Generosity isn't just giving, it is investing and bringing a return. They lived in this farming culture, they understood this sow and reap, and many farmers in that day and even today would like, well, I'm going to try to use a little less seed to cover this area, and maybe magically I'll get more results. And that never happens doesn't happen and so whatever seed you sow is what you will reap and that's what paul's saying here invest and generosity always 
pays a return. And what I want you to see, it doesn't just pay a return for those that you do it for. It pays a return in your life as well. When I give, when I'm a generous person, here's what happens in my life. It grows compassion. It grows compassion in my life. The more you give, the more you want to give. The more you understand the heart of God of giving as you give. Compassion is a power and is the power and the motivation behind generosity. And without it, our hearts will go cold, lonely, and eventually empty. But when I give and give freely, compassion starts to flow in my life. I grow excited about opportunities to give, to express the grace of God to others. Most likely is this. If you don't feel generous, it's because you're lacking compassion. If you don't feel generous, it's because you're lacking compassion. But compassion isn't produced in our lives just out of thin air. It comes when we actually obey and start to plant the seed of generosity. To give. To reach out to other people's lives. One of the quickest ways to grow generosity in your life is to practice it and then allow it to bring fruit and to grow compassion. The second thing that grows in my life, it grows contentment in my life. As I give, I have seen contentment grow in my life. We start to live generously and we stop thinking about accumulating and we start thinking about distribution. Things that I acquire are not just for me anymore, they are for we. I can tell contentment isn't growing in my life when I start to look at other people and see what they have and I grow angry. Like, why can't I have that? Why can't I have this? What about this? What about that? And I start this comparison game and comparison is the enemy of contentment. And when I start comparing, I start getting things and I start trying to guard those things and make sure nobody else gets those. My daughter, Natalie, has started reading The uh, Hobbit uh, which is one of my favorite books growing up. But there's a character in The Hobbit called Smog. He's the dragon. And he is in this volcano mountain, and he is on this hoard of gold and treasures and everything like that. I mean, you even when you read about the book or you see it in the movie or all those things, it's like this immeasurable wealth. But can I tell you, whatever immeasurable wealth you have, if all you're doing is trying to protect it and guard it, there's no value in it. There's no value in it. There was no value in that treasure that he was guarding in that mountain. The only value came when it was distributed out, when it went to work. And that's where contentment grows, to come to a point where you say, there's a finish line in my life, there's enough. And now, what I have, it's us, it's not me. I take down the fences, and I take down the guard, and it begins to come open up in our life. And this is actually one of the hardest battles in our culture. I mean, we live in a culture that constantly tells us, buy more, buy bigger, accumulate more, trade up. There's no amount of things that will ever bring you contentment if you live like this. It's not about what's new. It's about taking what you have and using it. The third thing, it grows is character. It grows character in my life. When I give generously, my character changes. I start to care about people and see people in a different way. Instead of being defined by what I have, I start being defined by who I am. You aren't the person with a nice car, the luxury apartment, the expensive jewelry, designer clothes, or the big checking account. Instead, you are the person who cares, who shows compassion, who's genuine, authentic, and gracious. You're a person of love, respect, and honor. People aren't impressed with your possessions, but instead, they're, they're impressed with the quality of character that you possess. What are you sowing? What are you investing that's going to bring a return in their life, in your life? Quickly, a third misconception is this, is thinking that generosity is just about a desire. If I can grow 
this desire. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Now, Paul isn't trying to win an argument here and convince you to give. Instead, he's trying to, again, remove these constraints in our life that keep us from giving. When we stop thinking about it as being just money or just the act of giving and start thinking about it as investing, it will suddenly open up and we will see new ways to be generous that we've never thought about before. And desire grows in our life to be more generous. But then there's a trap. And this is where we can get tricked. Because we often equate generosity with just the desire to give. Here's how it happens. A need is presented to you, an opportunity, given time that you can use your time or give relationally or give your resources. Compassion in your heart swells. You may even be moved to tears. You think this is something that we should help with and it's a great cause and an opportunity to get involved in. And we say, you know what? We'll do it when I'm able. Or somebody else will do that. That's a great cause for people to get behind. I'll cheer them on. I'll talk about it. And then we walk away from the opportunity, having experienced all the feelings and desire to give, but we never acted on it. Never acted on it. Never actually demonstrated anything other than concern. We let the moment pass, and then we look back and pat ourselves on the back and tell ourselves we were generous simply because I had concern and thought about doing something. So we were you know, right in the middle of playoff season with football and Super Bowl, and we were out watching a game, one of the playoff games last week, and like, we both went to overtime, and it was crazy. And uh, I remember when the Patri- Patriots won, it was like big. And I remember a couple saying, we won, we won. And I was like, how did you get from here to there? Because I, I didn't see you on the field. Like, I didn't actually see you playing. But they, they took that ownership of that moment and that excitement and that victory that those men on that field experienced, and they took it, even though they weren't the ones doing it, and said, this is how I feel. And this is what we can often do with generosity. We can be a part of a group like our church who is generous and saying, oh, we're, I'm generous because the church does this mission work. But we've never taken ownership of being a part of it. We've never given our time. We've never, we just pat ourselves on the back and say, I am part of something that does that without actively engaging into it. And we're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of that. Too often I walk by and I have concern for somebody that I see and I feel good about myself because at least I say, well, at least I was concerned. I bet nobody else even noticed that guy. And I make myself feel better for doing nothing. Right? This is a myth. And why do we do that? You have to, to get past this. You have to do a few things. One, stop keeping score. You, you will always be hesitant to act if you say, well, what are they going to do with I give? What are they going to do for me? Or this is the person I gave to before and they haven't given me anything back yet. And we start keeping this scorecard. If you look at the scorecard, you will never be generous because you'll always feel like you're behind. The second thing you've got to start doing is start responding immediately. Just act. I'll do something, not later, I'll do it now. And look, we can't fix every problem in an instant. I'm not saying that, but you can in- instantly at least interject yourself into the problem. And I struggle with this one probably the most. I can see needs, my heart will break, and I want to be compassionate, and then I keep moving and the feeling passes. So I've instituted a rule in my life And I call it the rule of 10. And I'm not telling you to do this. I'm just sharing with you how I've tried to overcome this. And so I always try to keep $10 in my pocket or a $10 gift card, something. If I see somebody in a physical need, and it's a legitimate, I can help meet a physical need in that moment. Or even beyond that, what I want to say is like, I probably have 10 minutes that I can stop and have a conversation with this person. 
to actually engage with them, to do something, to, to bring the human element into this. So maybe it's $10 one time, maybe it's 10 minutes. And if things are just crazy and there's no way to stop, there's just something going on where I can't even get 10 minutes, I'm at least going to mentally take ten, a minimum of 10 seconds and pray for these people. I'll bring them before. It will internalize it and help me to at least do something to get engaged spiritually in their lives. But I want to at least find a way to act immediately. And again, we can't fix everything, but we can do something. The third way you get over this hurdle is to actually schedule your generosity. This is one of the things Katie and I have tried to make a part of our life is we create routines to be generous. Whether that's attending a fundraiser, being a part of groups that we know are going to ask us for our time and our resources, or putting ourselves in relationships where we know we can help and they can help us, or we can experience generosity together. It's something that we make happen. We do this with our money, our time, and our relationships. If generosity really is an investment, then I want to be investing regularly. I don't want to just wait for the magic opportunity to happen. So how can you do this? Schedule giving. You can do that through the church. If you give to the church regularly, there's a way to just schedule. It's a part of who we are. You can do that on the website or the app. Make a commitment to attend a fundraiser. Not, not even related to our church, but if there's a need or a cause that you're about, say, I'm going to go. I'm going to find out how I can just stop being concerned and I can get involved. Schedule regular times to serve and make regular invitations to other people to join you in that. Like, don't wait on the need to arise. There are already needs that have arisen. And it's finding those and coming alongside of those. The last thing we'll end with this, and I love the way he ends. The last misconception is thinking generosity is a punishment. He says here, for God loves a cheerful giver. So this makes you immediately think, well, God, I guess, doesn't love me if I don't give. Right? Like, so I better start giving. Paul is, again, not using guilt here. We often think giving is a chore, but something completely different here. Generosity is a pathway to personally experiencing more of the love of God. Can I tell you, if I fill my heart up with things and I fill my life up with things and that's where I'm receiving my value, I don't have any room for the value of God to be poured into my life. But if I'm taking the things, the things I'm blessed with, the circumstances, and I let them flow through my life, I've always got more and more room to experience more and more of the love of God. Here's what I want you to see. Generosity isn't something that God wants from you, it is something that God wants for you. It's for you. It's not from you. It's not a chore. It's something he wants for you. As I end, usually each week I end with a question of the day, but in this series I'm actually going to end by sharing a vision of how I think God is calling us to allow these rhythms of grace to play out in our faith family and our church family. And this first one is about generosity. Typically our church Uh, we have a season of giving and a season of serving. If you've been around our church much, you know November is typically a season of serve and a season of give. What we're going to do is take those two things, kind of mix them together, and spread them out over the year. And so here's what I'm asking us to consider this year. Is that beginning in March, that we would adopt one project per month that would be our primary expression of grace. Maybe that's a need here in the city. Maybe it's a need around the world. Maybe it's all kinds of different ways that we can interact uh, and where I need your help is coming up with some of those ideas to offer things that you know, this is where our church could help. This is where we could get involved. But we're not just going to elevate that cause and show concern. We're actually going to give. So annually, 
We give about 25% of all tithes and offerings that come into our church. We give those to missions, some kind of different mission, whether that's uh, one of the ones we talk about with our Advent offering or different organizations that we have regular connections with. And so what we're going to commit to do is this. In that month, all of, all of our tithes and offerings come in, we're going to take 20% of that and give it directly to that organization. We're going to express our generosity regularly through that. And then we're going to take 5% and hold on to it and keep it from maybe unforeseen circumstances and unforeseen needs that would pop up in our community and in our city. It's still missionally, but we're going to use that. So still 25% of our, but we're going to have a different uh, topic and a different organization each month that we connect with. And this is where I need your help. Again, two things. One, help us connect with those groups. Who do you know? Who can we help? You can talk to me about that. You can email any of those kind of things, just let me know, and we'll start to talk about that and elevate those. But the second thing is to give, to give, to choose to give regularly. And I, I'm, this is not a tithing speech because I'm, I'm not asking you to give more so we can get more stuff here. Like the more we give, the more is going to impact missions. And so I want to challenge you to think about it. If you're not giving regularly, if you're not engaged in missional aspect of things, come and be a part of the generosity of this church. Don't just say I'm part of a church that's generous, but say, I'm actively engaging in doing that as well. We join me as we pray this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to live generously, to live out that calling in our life, not just to say something I want to do, but to God realize with all of our heart that it is something you want for us that a generous spirit draws us into a closer relationship and understanding of your heart and who you are. So God, help us this morning. Even in these moments now, we're going to give in just a few minutes to, to give out of a generous spirit, but to not get caught up in the thinking that it's about money, to realize this is about so much more than that. It's about what you want to do in our hearts and our lives. So Lord, we love you and thankful that we have a chance to give this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.